Welcome to the historical context episode for season one, episode three. Uh, when this famous episode of Twin Peaks aired, there were some interesting things going on both on TV and in the world around it, so we're going to discuss that. These episodes tend to be shorter than some of the others, but as uh, this podcast progresses, they are going to get longer. I've recorded most of the material ahead of time, and I get more and more into the details of things going on around this Uh, around each episode, but starting off, we're a little shorter in this spring of 1990. I also have added something to this episode and gone back and added it to the two previous current events episodes, which is an outro that's audio from some sort of video clip, be it a news clip or a TV opening theme or something. So for the previous episode, I added the Max Monroe Loose Cannon uh, episode theme as well as the Grand uh, opening theme. And then uh, the two TV shows that were on around the same time as Twin Peaks. And then the week before that, uh, the the pilot episode coverage, I actually added a, a news clip of Dan Rather talking about Ryan White, the, the boy who died of AIDS, the day that the pilot premiered. And while looking that up, I found this bizarre clip of uh, Donald Trump and Michael Jackson visiting Ryan White's family and talking to press at the tarmac in this like Midwestern town. So... Uh, those are both linked below, both the clips and the adjusted uh, podcast episodes. But from now on, uh, every episode, including this one, will end with some sort of sample of the time, because it's one thing to talk about it, another thing to sort of hear the texture of it in a way. This episode aired at 9 p.m. on Thursday, April 19th, 1990. After a Sunday movie of the week premiere, quickly followed by the first regular hour on the previous Thursday, now the show was settling into a weekly routine. While the show's numbers remained strong, especially given the competition of the Cheers juggernaut and the time slot, it was continuing a downward trajectory from the phenomenal pilot. Episode 2 slipped to 19.2 million viewers from the previous week's 23.2. For some reason, I think I misreported that last episode as 14.9. My apologies. Its audience share dropped to 21% from 27 and it earned a 13.1 rating, whereas the previous entry racked up a 16.2 in the Nielsen. So we're seeing a noticeable drop-off here. Cheers on NBC mostly made up the difference, with 35 million viewers producing a, 29 a 21.9 rating. So 35 million viewers, that's more than watch Twin Peaks' massive pilot. So even this normal average episode of Cheers could outperform Twin Peaks' biggest episode so far. That's, you know, a little bit ominous for Twin Peaks, I think. Cheers produced ratings like this all the time, so it was going to be hard for Twin Peaks to compete. Worse, though, Twin Peaks wasn't even ABC's highest-rated primetime programming for the night. Primetime Live, which aired just after Twin Peaks, had more viewers and a higher rating, and no doubt this was due to the appearance of Marla Maples, Donald Trump's mistress at the time, who was caught in the midst of his tumultuous divorce. Diane Sawyer spoke to her in what the Washington Post labeled a blonde-on-blonde interview, Uh, but according to New York Times, which noted the heavy promotion of the interview, she said little of Trump. The AP, whose article is the only one that doesn't appear behind a paywall in 2019, observed that Primetime Live received its highest ratings ever for this conversation, beating its special on the deadly San Francisco earthquake the previous October. So, that's an interesting context. Anyway, despite a blockbuster opening, Twin Peaks increasingly looked like it was going to have to cater to a niche audience compared to other programming. Would this be enough to keep it on the air? Leading into Twin Peaks on ABC was a repeat episode of Father Dowling Mysteries. I'm not sure what it was, which which episode it was a repeat of. I can't get that info. Last week I discussed the show Max Monroe Loose Cannon, 
and its uh, strange, very early 90s vibe, well, that was pretty short-lived, so here we go. This is uh, the last time we'll have a Max Monroe episode up against Twin Peaks. The show only got a bit more than half of Twin Peaks' numbers, and this was probably the final episode to air before it was canceled. According to some resources I was able to find online, the show's star Shadow Stevens was Casey Kasem's brief replacement on the Top 40 countdown before Kasem returned, and only in recent years has Stevens found a steady, high-profile gig as an announcer and sidekick to Craig Ferguson on his late-night show. Meanwhile, on NBC, the counter-programming, of course, was Cheers, and the big hit of the night was Mr. Otis Regrets, the episode that Cheers aired, in which Sam lies about having sex on an elevator to impress Rebecca, who's the love interest played by Kirstie Alley as like a kind of replacement for the Shelley Long character in the first few seasons. Perhaps the second most significant event of this whole night of TV, or maybe the third after the Red Room episode, of course, and the Marlo Maples interview, was the premiere of Wings, the show about two brothers who ran a small airport in Nantucket. In this very first episode, this is, I guess, the pilot of Wings, Legacy, oh, there's a nice pun. It's called Legacy, and it's about uh, the estranged brothers, one of whom ran off with the other wife, the other brother's wife several years earlier, reunited by their father's death and a scavenger hunt that he's organized to find their inheritance. Wings was created by a trio of Cheers veterans who later went on to create Frasier, and the Cheers characters would occasionally make cameos on the series, which ran until 1997. So this is a pretty big event, this premiere of the show, uh, right against the Red Room. And it got significantly more viewers than Twin Peaks. With 30 million viewers, it came close to Cheers numbers for the night. And both, back-to-back, in the same time slot as Twin Peaks, each a half-hour show when Twin Peaks was an hour, they handily beat Twin Peaks in the ratings. Clearly, ABC's big challenge to NBC's must-see TV block was destined to run a distant, if respectable, second place. On the big screen in, in movie theaters, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles remained the number one film in the country for the fourth week in a row, although its take had dwindled to $9 million from the opening week's $25 million. Certainly back then, April was not a big month for movies, so this just managed to dominate for that time. So I guess I know what I was watching as a six-year-old at the time that Twin Peaks was first captivating viewers. I'd never heard of Twin Peaks until much later, long after it was canceled, but I very much remember going to see Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in the movie theater in kindergarten. The Time Magazine cover for the week of April 16th was a colorful illustration of a particle collider titled Smash, with the subtitle, Colossal Colliders Are Unlocking the Secrets of the Universe. So I suppose it's something to do with quantum physics, which is an interesting cover story for the week that Lynch first explored the Red Room, at least if you've read Martha Nockamson, a Lynch scholar uh, who's used quantum concepts to explore Lynch's work in pretty compelling new ways, I think. The big story of this day, April 19th, was that after a decade of warfare, fueled by the Reagan administration in many notorious ways, the Sandinistas and Contras agreed to a truce. So that's the left-wing government of Nicaragua and the right-wing rebels that had been fighting them for a decade. Later that year, the government would hold an election in which the Sandinistas would lose, much to the celebration of the U.S. right, who considered them a communist dictatorship, Although it's worth pointing out uh, that the Sandinistas had actually won an election, an internationally recognized legitimate election, way back in 1984, which always gets conveniently left out of that story. On a lighter note, the Pistons and 76ers got into a fight on the basketball court 
that was so rough, the NBA applied a record $162,500 in fines. The fight involved Charles Barkley, Isaiah Thomas, and Dennis Rodman, among others. And there's a great news clip that I've linked below from the time, which ends with a fuming black-eyed Bill Lambeer hurling some hilarious stone-faced insults at Barkley and his own former teammate, Rick Mahorn. That's it for this episode. Please support this podcast by rating, reviewing, and subscribing on Apple Podcasts. And you can also become a patron at patreon.com slash lost in the movies. And don't forget to check out the illustrated companions to each of uh, each week of podcasts for this, where I have the Time Magazine cover that I'm talking about, images from some of the news stories and so forth, and uh, all sorts of things. Like for tomorrow's episode, which is going to be uh, the characters, the coffee pie and donuts, I have like visual representations for all of that, for the character rankings and so forth. It, it goes well, I think, with the audio. So check that out as well. Uh, this this week's uh, Illustrated Companion is linked below. And of course, as promised, uh, here is some audio, in this case, from that basketball brawl and the uh, ins- the ensuing aftermath, uh, as discussed by the reporters. Interrupt our celebration, but can't nothing take away from it. I got hit first. So, um, you know, what he says is insignificant because... Uh, he really doesn't, nobody really cares about him. He's a loser. Now, Lane Bear also had a few thoughts about his former teammate Rick Mahorn. They exchanged some greetings following the brawl. I was telling Ricky why'd he run away. And he said, he unintelligible. That's basically how he talks. Thursday night.